Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Today's podcast is sort of a celebration. It's the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort. The Magic Kingdom opened on October 1st, 1971, 50 years ago, and I think it's worth celebrating that and noting it and marking the occasion. And so I thought what I'd do today is tell four stories about the opening of the Walt Disney World Resort. One from my own perspective, three from other people who uh, were there at the, uh, at the resort, and kind of give you some perspective on it. Now, it was the Magic Kingdom only that opened on October 1st. The rest of the resort followed suit in, in short order, but this was the day of the magic happening, the day that things got started. You know, starting in about 1963 or 64, when Walt Disney first identified the property as something he wanted to have and started thinking about how to get the Florida project going and thinking about Progress Land and his future, it all started that at that point. And here we are, you know, eight years later at the culmination of this. There had been state legislatures, hurdles they had to jump through, regulatory things, other things that had to happen along the way, plus, of course, Walt's death and the company having to continue on going with his, his vision and trying to build something that was basically Disneyland East at this point, and something more remarkable. So October 1st had been selected by the Disney company as the slowest day of the week and the slowest month of the year in Orlando to try and help keep the crowds manageable. Fearing that they'd have a repeat of the disastrous opening of Disneyland in 1955, where many people, many more people than expected flooded into the park, and there were challenges with food and attractions, and it was kind of messy. So the Walt Disney World Employee Bulletin tried to prepare cast members by saying, quote, tomorrow we raise the curtain on the beginning of the October preview month for the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. Planning began in 1965. Now, $400 million and six years later in untold gallons of blood, sweat, and tears, the public will visit this most ambitious creation in the history of the Disney organization. It will be a great and memorable day for all of us. This does not mean that it won't have its frantic, hectic, confusing moments. If your costume doesn't fit, a tram breaks down, and other things don't happen like they should, don't get uptight. That, as they say, is show business. End quote. The night before opening, work was still going on either instituting temporary measures where the job simply could not be completed by the next morning or by making final finishing touches. So with that in mind, let's get started talking about a couple of these stories. As I said, I wanted to talk about my own personal experience. Now, I was not there for opening day, but I lived in South Florida, 
And I was about five years old when the park opened. And I got to tell you, there was a certain thrill, a certain buzz in the air. Everyone knew that Disney was building this new park, this new area in Orlando or just outside of Orlando. And there was a little bit of anticipation for it. We watched The Wonderful World of Disney every week. We knew what was coming. We had this sense of there's something cool out there. There's something coming. And as I've said before in previous podcasts, my grandfather was a bit of a Walt Disney fan. Uh, He had kind of followed his career. And, you know, as I said, he knew some people who knew some people. So he had a a sense of sort of this understanding of Walt Disney was really a, a visionary. And he was fascinated by that. And it was always kind of interesting because he talked in, you know, these kind of fun and glowing terms about Walt Disney, the person. And when there was this idea to build a park in Florida, he was all over it. He was really interested in it. He was fascinated by the whole idea. He thought it was an amazing thing. He'd never been to California, my grandfather, and so had never gone to Disneyland, but always knew about Disneyland. It's sort of that thing that became part of the culture, partly through, you know, the media of the day and the wonderful world of Disney and other things like that. But that's how he got to know what Disneyland was all about. And when he heard there was a Disney World coming, he's like, wow, this is cool. And it's within driving distance. That's amazing. So if you lived in Florida in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you knew what was coming. The buzz was there. And you heard about this Disney World. And as it opened, we were talking about it. Everyone was talking about it. I don't think anyone kind of was unaware of it. And certainly some people probably were, but people were aware of it. And we talk about it. We talk about it in school. Have you gone yet? Are you going to go? Wow, it sounds supposed to have this. It's supposed to have that. That sounds really cool. Get to meet Mickey Mouse. Awesome. You know, just that kind of awesome experience. And as time went by, until about maybe 1974 or five, you were still, you still had this mix of people who either hadn't gone or hadn't really heard enough about it yet. And people who had gone who were telling stories about it. You know, oh, this great ride or this great thing or this thing you can do. And the new attraction that's coming and this new thing. And it was just, there was this, always this palpable buzz. And we were always talking about it. As kids, you know, that was a playland. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have great TV. We, you know, we thought about things we wanted to do. And Disney World was one of those things we wanted to do. So by the time the Magic Kingdom opened, it was like, wow, this is really cool. Now, I was talking to my mom trying to remember when exactly we went. And I'm pretty sure, and she was too, that we went sometime in early 1972. It was probably like spring break time because I remember sort of the weather being kind of cool when we went. Um, So it wouldn't have been summer, though I guess it could have been. It could have been like June or something, but it was probably then is my my recollection. And the, you know, that aligns with, you know, the timing of everything. So probably went then. Um, and it was really pretty neat. And, you know, that it was, so it was a little later. And what I remember is, you know, seeing the monorail for the first time, that was totally cool. This, this vehicle, I'd never seen anything like it. It was just amazing. This, this, uh, this transportation method and the doors opened automatically, you know, through the pneumatics and you climbed in and you rode along and it was quiet and it was above ground. It was really pretty neat. Um, so it was a really interesting experience. And then walking through the turnstiles and going under the train station and seeing this place, this, this other land, this other world where you were inside um, a street in, you know, Marceline, Missouri, basically, and you were walking along and you were seeing something from the turn of the century, it was just remarkable. Didn't see anything like that. And there was a certain excitement, a certain buzz that went along with all of it. Now, along the way, it was funny, my, um, I think my grandparents wound up going probably in December that year, uh, the year it opened, um, in 71. Um, 
I have a recollection of my grandfather saying something about going for Christmas time because he heard they were going to do something really neat. So I think they went, but I, I'm not sure. My memory is a little fuzzy on that since it wasn't me and I was kind of young, but that's what I remember happened. Now, I did have some other relatives and you know, people that I knew who were a little older than me who would taunt me a little bit. You know, I've already been there. When are you going to get to go? You know, it was sort of that thing back and forth, right? You just have some fun with it because it was, there was that certain buzz and you talk about all the excitement that was there. And I remember the, um, when I, I remember my first trip, one of the things that, that caught my attention was the 20,000 leagues under the sea. There was these submarines that looked like the submarines from the movie. They did a great job of making them look like that. They came out from behind the cave, you know, from the waterfall and came out and rode around. And I remember thinking about that and how cool that was that I was seeing something that I'd seen in a movie. And it was really pretty neat. And I remember my dad talking about um, these imagination engineers who had kind of put together a lot of this stuff and uh, you know, thought through all these things. And there was a lot of thematics that happened. So you were walking along and things felt well, you know, well themed. It wasn't, you know, there were, there were roadside amusement parks and other places that we'd gone um, through the years, whether it was you know, then or later, and never seen anything like this. It was of this scale and it was just that amazing. The, um, it was just so fascinating and it was just so intriguing to be there and be a part of it and, you know, enjoy this. And for the next four or five years, you know, sort of as it was growing and building, it was, there was always this specter of it and being young and impressionable in that sense and seeing all these fun things, it was always kind of neat to be able to go along and kind of grow and see what was different every time. It was really neat. And it was, you know, it was one of those special experiences. Yeah, I wasn't there on opening day but the buzz was, and we knew about it, and we talked about it, and we had so much fun thinking about what it would be like to go there. And then going there, it actually kind of lived up to the expectation. That was the amazing part about it. A lot of places you hear about and you do these things and you realize they don't really live up to the hype. This one did, and that was what was really incredible about it. Now for the second story, I wanted to talk about the first paying customers who went to Disney World and the Magic Kingdom. There were three University of Florida uh, students, they were classmates, friends, um, who uh, would be considered the, uh, the first paying customers. They were Keith Padgett, Jer- Jack Sherrod, and Gary Walker. The three had camped out uh, by Disney before the opening, but they were shooed away by Disney security and the local police, they were told to leave. They found another place to camp out for a while. They were shooed away from there too. And they wound up being a couple of people that were in their cars uh, who would pull up to the main gate, see the gate was closed, turn around and go back and then join the line again and come back a couple of times. So they, were, they had this uh, sort of uh, thing they were doing back and forth where they were just going up to the gate and uh, waiting for the gates to open so they could be first or among the first that would go through the gates. Now, once the gates did open, they had a plan. These guys were very clever. Um, Sherrod was a former high school football star who had a fast 100-yard dash time. And his goal was to run to the gate, to be at the gate. Walker, who was also a high school football player, um, would run to get tickets. 
And then Paget would park the car and they would all meet up at the gate where the first guy was waiting, where Sherrod was waiting. So they had this, this well thought out plan and they executed it flawlessly. Lo and behold, it worked. The three friends were standing first in line at eight o'clock on October 1st, 1971. They were right there. They were the first ones at the gate. They'd already bought their tickets. They were ready to go in. But unfortunately, they weren't the first to enter the park. That would fall to another family. Um, and uh, Sherrod later had said, I just always felt and I always knew that they were not first, that other family. Uh, all these years, it's bugged me that it wasn't right because Disney made the deal to offer lifetime passes to the first in line and they reneged on it. Now, Disney spokesman Charlie Ridgway said many years later that he had made no promises of lifetime passes and I don't think we can do this based on uh, old recollections. But in any case, the men turned out to be the first paying customers and uh, Walker now treasures that memory or has always treasured that memory is a very fine memory of mine. Walker went on to be an attorney, Paget ran a transportation company, and Sherrod ran a van conversion business. Two of the three stayed in the central Florida area-ish. Um, one went up to uh, as far as Atlanta, but that was as far away as he got. So they were always kind of close, and they always still went to the parks. They still enjoyed going to the parks, even as they had families of their own. Um, they all uh, continued to go in and just enjoy themselves. Now, at the 20th anniversary, Paget was interviewed, and he said, Wow, I sure could have used free passes with three kids. Yeah, preach, brother. That's, that's what I say, too. But kind of funny how that works out, that that's the way it worked for them. And it was really pretty cool that they were the first paying customers to get to the park. Now the next story is about the Magic Kingdom's first official family. Now reporters were inside the gates waiting for the first guest to enter the park and uh, they wanted to record this moment in history. Now by most accounts there were about a thousand people standing at the gates. Now they were loud so a lot of people thought, you know, it was reported on that there was more than a thousand there but there were about a thousand people uh, there at the time. They had 14 gates at the time so they were kind of spread out across the area and those in front of those gates. Director of Marketing Jack Lindquist, who had been there many hours earlier with Charlie Ridgway from Publicity and Dick Nunes, walked slowly back and forth and they were surveying the crowd to determine which gate would be open first. And by 9.30 a.m. he had made a decision. Lindquist said, I did that by walking the gate and looking at the people at the front of the line. I wanted a family who represented a typical Disney family to me. I picked a family with a father who looked like golfer Jack Nicholas and a mother who looked like Mrs. Brady from television show the, the, the Brady Bunch. And they had two blonde sons, so it kind of fit in the image there. Lindquist later had recounted that um, he didn't want to pick teenagers. He didn't want to pick an old couple. There can really be no first person because there are so many gates, but we wanted to have someone that represented sort of the Disney image in a way. And so the people that went through the gate first, that blonde family, was Bill Windsor Jr from Lakeland, Florida, accompanied by his blue-eyed wife, Marty, and their sons, Jay, who was three, and Lee, who was nearly 19 months. Now, it turned out that they had arrived so early that the entire family had slept in their car overnight, 
at a roadside rest stop in order to be the first to get to the gate. And they had their proverbial 15 minutes of fame as reporters asked questions and took pictures with them and so forth. And they were invited in and joined a parade on Main Street, being the first guest to enjoy that honor and uh, riding up Main Street along with Mickey Mouse, kind of a cool thing. And they were followed by the Magic Kingdom marching band. Jay Windsor, riding in the fire engine, exclaimed, this is better than Christmas. At Cinderella's castle, Mickey Mouse led the Magic Kingdom's first family to the center of the hub as the band formed behind them and began to play When You Wish Upon a Star. From the castle entrance, Disney characters came out onto the, uh, on, in a procession. More band members came up Main Street, and I believe there was like 1,076 band members that filled Main Street all the way up and down Main Street. And as they finished, the band dispersed and people started streaming through the gates. The November 1971 issue of the Walt Disney World cast member newspaper said, quote, Day one for the Windsors was full of tours, important persons, and dozens of reporters and photographers. But day one was not the only big day in the Windsors' lives. They received the Lifetime Silver Pass to Walt Disney World, so we hope to see them often in the days and years to come. End quote. As the Windsors were taken from attraction to attraction, Marty told Orlando Magazine, I hope it never changes our life. We've always been so happy together. Some years later, Bill acknowledged that he was aware they weren't technically the first people who should have been admitted to the Magic Kingdom. The college students were. And as I've noticed before, it was a bit muddled what was offered, and it seems there had been no official announcement in advance that the first family would be chosen or that they would receive additional favors of any kind. Now, while the Windsor family claimed to be overwhelmed, Charlie Ridgway laughs about it and remembers it a little bit differently because he saw the, uh, the family come to Jack Lindquist asking for coins to play in the Penny Arcade on Main Street. In his book, In Service to the Mouse, Lindquist says... It was not necessarily a happily ever after ending for the first family of the Magic Kingdom in the Disney Company. Quote, After selecting the first family for the opening of Walt Disney World, I welcomed them into a mass of flashbulbs and hoopla. The Windsors received a royal day of VIP-hosted functions, including lunch and an overnight stay at the hotel. We gave them lifetime passes. But these were mistakes, we soon learned, as they took unfair advantage of the perks. Appreciating an advantage is fine, but taking advantage in uncalled-for manner is not okay. After opening day, the Windsors often called and said, we'll be there in about two hours and we want someone to meet us to do this, this, and this. We're bringing 12 people. We want to have dinner and stay overnight. It sort of put a damper on the all-American family concept. The Windsor family is probably still visiting the parks today for free. my fourth and final story. It's about a boy who flew cross-country alone for opening day. 12-year-old Tom Morris heard about the Disney World's opening and he wanted to attend, but the trouble was that he lived in California. But he saved enough money from his paper route and bought a ticket to travel to Orlando. Alone. It was his first airplane trip and his parents, well, they gave their blessing. As he planned for a visit, he wrote to Disney World about hotel stays, but what he got was a very nice letter back indicating he must be accompanied by his parents. So that was out. He instead made plans to fly to Atlanta that night where an uncle and aunt would pick him up and he'd stay there overnight. He took the red eye from LA on September 30th to get there on time. But there's a little more to this story. 
One of the customers on his paper route was Jack Sayers, a high-ranking Disney marketing executive. Sayers and Morris talked about Disney World. They were both planning on being there, so Sayers made some arrangements for Morris, which both surprised and delighted the youngster. Morris was picked up by someone from Disney at the airport before dawn and driven to Lake Buena Vista. He went to the Ticket and Transportation Center, met a VIP hostess, and received a ticket book for the theme park. They rode the monorail to the Polynesian, where some members of the press were waiting. Morris recalls the monorail was so cool. That was my first wow impression. Another wow was when we first walked into the Polynesian Hotel. I remember that smell to this day. It was a combination of fresh orchids and probably wood stain that had just been applied the night before to the railings. But then he added, we went to the Polynesian Hotel, which was okay, this is interesting, but when are we going to go to the Magic Kingdom? And they did make it to the, the Magic Kingdom shortly after that. And Linquist's secretary joined, uh, joined in and gave him some personal tours and insight. They visited all the open attractions, and he said basically the impression of everything is it's Disneyland, but more or bigger. He goes on to tell a story about how they went into the Haunted Mansion, and it was just them, him and Linquist's secretary, Joanne, and I asked her if it was okay if I took a couple of flash pictures. She said, sure. So I took a flash picture in the stretching room, and I took a flash picture of the singing bus. I thought, wow, VIP privileges. And then came dinner at King Stephen's Banquet Hall in the castle. He says, I don't remember specifically who the people were. A lot of old men and their wives, you know, gray-haired, banker-looking, probably board of directors type people. Now, later in the day, there was a discussion about having him stay overnight in the Polynesian, but he passed on the offer. He said, I felt like it would be such an imposition because they would have had to redo the flight and everything, and that would that have cost me money? You know, would Disney charge me for the money for the flight if there was an upcharge to it? I didn't have any more money. So he went about his business and flew to Atlanta and met his uh, relatives. In any case, he received the national attention for his coast-to-coast adventure and being the youngest person to enter the parks and having a unique experience going to it. And he said later, I can't believe my parents were so casual about it, you know? I mean, there was not a big argument about it. It was more, you know, what a weird thing you want to do. Incidentally, he was offered a job at Disneyland when he turned 14, and he jumped on it and expressed an interest in being a part of the web designers, what became the Imagineers, which actually happened when he was in college. So he dropped out and became an Imagineer. But he never mentioned the story about flying cross-country to go to Disney World to any of his colleagues. But stay tuned, he's writing a book about that experience in WED and about some of his the earliest Imagineers. He promises to examine all the Imagineers and Imagineering itself, its process, where it did business, who its key consultants were up until just after the opening of Walt Disney World in 1971. So sounds like an intriguing book. I, I look forward to reading that. So those are the stories I wanted to tell. One other little nugget for you I just wanted to share. The actual dedication ceremony happened a few weeks later. Walt Disney World held a three-day grand opening celebration starting on October 23rd. Celebrities like Bob Hope, Julie Andrews, Rock Hudson, Jonathan Winters, Annette Funicello, and Fred McMurray 
arrived in Orlando on that day to begin Walt Disney World's official opening festivities. The official grand opening celebrations of Disney's contemporary and Polynesian village resorts took place on the 24th. The electrical water pageant and Fantasy in the Sky Spectacular also debuted that evening. By October 25th, the park's actual dedication day, the Admiral Joe Fowler Riverboat, Peter Pan's Light, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea had all opened to guests as well. Television cameras caught all the action over these three days for an October 29th broadcast. And personally, I remember seeing that broadcast. I'd forgotten about that until just now. And this is where Roy read the dedication plaque. Walt Disney World is a tribute to the philosophy and the life of Walter Elias Disney. And to the talents, the dedication, and the loyalty of the entire Disney organization that made Walt Disney's dream come true. May Walt Disney World bring joy and inspiration and new knowledge to all who come to this happy place, a magic kingdom where the young at heart of all ages can laugh and play and learn together. Dedicated this 25th day of October, 1971. Now some fun facts for you. On Friday, October 1st, 1971, after seven years of planning, about 10,000 visitors converged to Orlando to witness the grand opening of the well, Walt Disney World Resort. The Magic Kingdom, encompassing approximately 107 acres, featured Adventureland, Fantasyland, Frontierland, Liberty Square, Tomorrowland, a Main Street USA, and about 5,500 cast members. At the end of October 1971, the total attendance was around 400,000. The day after Thanksgiving, November 26, 1971, an amazing 50,000 guests entered the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney World also debuted two property hotels, the 15-story Contemporary Resort and the Polynesian Village Resort, both built by U.S. Steel and both connected by the monorail system. The hotels were conceived by Wen Enterprises and the Los Angeles architecture firm of Walton, Beckett & Associates. U.S. Steel was originally going to own the hotels, but Roy Disney decided to buy out their interests and let Disney run the hotels themselves. Resort planners scheduled the opening in October in the hopes that the estimated crowds would be small, and they were. Two days before the opening of Walt Disney World, the Florida Highway Patrol had issued a statement that they believed as many as 300,000 people might try to be among the first to get into the Magic Kingdom. Fortunately, the small crowd of 10,000 on October 1st, 1971, allowed any problems that sprang up to be fixed with minimal inconvenience. Unlike Disneyland's chaotic opening. That was a kind of a funny thing that happened here. That number kind of grew along the way. Press agent Charlie Ridgway recalled, On opening day, I remember Card Walker and Don Tatum going up in a helicopter to see traffic coming into the park. Originally, we had predicted there would be about 10,000 people, but the newspapers kept increasing that figure. One paper on the East Coast predicted 200,000, and that was picked up by a foreign newspaper, and that added, they added an additional zero. So it was reported that 2 million people would show up. We purposely opened in the off-season to work out the bugs, and it turned out we were right that there was about 10,000 people that first day. Anyway, they are up there in the helicopter, and they see this long line of cars, and they're smiling, and then suddenly the line turns the wrong way, and they realize the cars weren't guests, but cast members driving to work. We had about 5,000 cast members in those days. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? M-I-C-K-Y-M-U-S-E Hey there, hi there, ho 
hold our banner high. Come along and sing our song and join the jamboree. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Way back in 1958, Walt Disney asked Economics Research Associates to find a suitable location for a second Disney park. The recommendation is flo- was for Florida. When Walt Disney World first opened, there were just five Mark IV monorails in operation, although five more longer trains were later added. A network of warehouse-sized rooms, hallways, and office spaces were built under the Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. The park that the guests act, see are actually on the second and third stories. Some key dates leading up to uh, Walt Disney World's uh, 1971 opening. April 15, 1964, Disney attorney heads to Florida to begin land purchases. June 18, 1964, Disney attorneys finalized large Central Florida land purchase from the Dimitri family. May 4, 1965, rumors of the East Coast Disneyland circulate. June 14, 1965, Walt holds a planning meeting for the new Florida theme park. June 25, 1965, attorney confirms anonymous buyer has completed all Florida land purchases. November 15, 1965, Disney formally launches Disney World Project. September 30, 1966, many dummy dummy companies are merged into Compass East Corporation. December 17, 1966, Roy O. Disney announces park's name will be Walt Disney World. February 2, 1967, Roy O. Disney outlines his late brother's plans. May 12, 1967, Lake Buena Vista and Bay Lake are established. May 30, 1967, site prep begins on Walt Disney World Project. September 26, 1967, Compass East Corporation becomes Walt Disney World Company. May 22, 1968, Walt Disney Travel Company Incorporated in Florida. April 30, 1969, Walt Disney World's first official press event is held. May 6, 1969, railroad engines purchased for Walt Disney Railroad are are, uh, started to work on, and they were actually worked on in Tampa. April 6, 1971, Look Magazine reports on the nearly complete Walt Disney World. June 28, 1971, Disney announces plans for an airstrip to be built on Walt Disney World property. September 23, 1971, Dapper Dan's Walt Disney World debut, performing for cast members and family. And September 30, 1971, the Walt Disney World Preview Center closes. And then, of course, October 1st, 1971, it all begins. And there you go. That's the story of the celebration that goes along with it being Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to talk about climate change. So this week happens to be the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, but it's also Climate Week in the United States. So I thought it was worth taking a couple of minutes and just talking about climate. Now the way I wanted to do this was to talk about how you can make a difference in climate. I'm going to share with you an article about some teenagers that are showing politicians up with their simple climate solutions. And it's kind of intriguing. There's some things going on here. And when you listen to it, you understand that you can make a difference, especially if you're a youngster and you have something that you're passionate about. Go forward with it. Make the world a better place because you want to make it a better place for you. So the uh, article comes from uh, euronews.com. 
and uh, it reads, there are so many ways to bring your unique skills to bear on the climate and environmental crises facing us. From using AI to fight deforestation to turning football goals into trees, five talented teenagers are showing us there's no limit on how we can recreate the world. The finalists of the Children's Climate Prize have all impressed the jury with their projects and are awaiting to find out who will win the 100,000 uh, Kronos, Kronos uh, uh, the Swedish um, unit of currency, for their cause on the uh, 8th of November, as well as a diploma and medal. Each one would be a worthy winner of the award organized by the Children's Climate Foundation, an initiative from Swedish renewable energy company Telj Energy. Celebrated Indian wildlife photographer Ashiwara Sridhar, who's 24, was part of this year's jury team and said, I was totally blown away by the ingenuity and practical application of each of the finalist projects. For the first time since the prize was founded in 2016, nominations were received from all six continents. Hailing from Australia, Brazil, Kenya, and the USA, each finalist has addressed real problems which are plaguing the world, said Ms. Sridhar, and created impactful solutions. Seeing their work, it also brought a sense of reassurance that with young people like them leading by example, the future is in the right hands. Last year, the prize went to two Indian teenagers, Venisha Umashankar, 14, and Ajya Joshi, 17, for solar-powered ironing carts and a biodiversity project, respectively. For the second year running, the awards ceremony on the 8th of November will be a digital broadcast. So here are the 2021 finalists and their inspiring, timely projects. First off, we have Anjali Sharma, 17, from Melbourne, Australia, tackling climate change in the courtroom. Anjali's legal wrangling in Australia is historic. Last year, she took the nation's environment minister to court over the extension of a coal mine, formally establishing that they had a duty of care to all Australian children in light of the climate crisis. The battle is ongoing, with an appeal hearing scheduled next month, but an important legal precedent has already been set in fossil fuel laggard Australia. If the duty of care is upheld, any future coal mines would in theory be an act of negligence. Anjali has been organizing with student strikers for three years. Her anger at how easily the government brushed aside climate protesters led her down a new avenue to hold Scott Morrison's team accountable. Australia's own law is something that not even the government can escape, she said. I'm fighting this fight for my family in India, who are on the front line of the climate crisis, she says, and I'm fighting this fight for young people. The 17-year-old's experience with the inner workings of the law has made her realize that an intricate and detailed thing it is and how open to interpretation it is. She is now even more determined to work in environmental law in stopping the construction of a coal mine extension that would pump over 100 million tons of CO2 in its lifetime, equivalent to a 20% of Australia's emissions in a year, Anjali's service to the world is already immense. Next up, we have Lesien uh, Mutenke, who's 17 from Nairobi, Kenya, fighting deforestation through football. Lesien has hit upon a brilliant way to use the world's love of football for good. A passionate footballer himself, Lesien came up with the idea age, uh, at age 12 to plant a tree for every goal he scored. The initiative, called Trees for Goals, soon caught the attention of other peoples and his school and football club adopted it, planting nearly 1,000 trees around Nairobi. With Kenya losing around 50,000 hectares of forest a year, the equivalent of 130 football fields a day, it was clear to Lesien that his solution needed to be upscaled. Its potential soon caught the attention of government too. He was invited to meet with the Minister of Environment and Forestry and later planted a tree with the president. 
The Children's Climate Prize jury said that Lessian represents the soul of the world by demonstrating how to mobilize a large number of people in a simple, smart, and innovative way. Under the Trees for Goals initiative, signed-up schools and football clubs are now committing to plant 11 trees for every goal they score, including during training. It has enormous potential. In an interview with The Ecologist, Lessian said he was keen to get FIFA and famous footballers on board. Next up is Yash Narayan, 17, from San Carlos, USA. Technology for better waste management. The start of Yash's entrepreneurial journey is sad and all too common for children. At 10 years old, he was being bullied at school when he got invited to participate in a hackathon, a two-day workshop to pitch and build an idea. Yash was inspired to create an anti-bullying watch, enabling him to express his feelings through technology. He ended up winning a prize, which spurred him on to use his tech skills to address the biggest problems that we're facing, climate change. His Deep Waste mobile app uses artificial intelligence to accurately classify waste. As the world grapples with mountains of unsorted waste, which often end up in a landfill, a more efficient system could do wonders for the environment. It's not a silver bullet, he says, but technology will play a crucial role in reducing global emissions and eventually combating climate change. The jury agreed, praising Deep Waste for being self-teaching, accessible, and uh, easily scalable. And next up is Rejma Kasaraju, uh, 15, from Saratoga, California. It's AI against forest fires. 15-year-old Reshma is applying AI in a life-saving way. She's created a model that proactively predicts forest fires using meteorological data and other parameters. Forest fires have been an increasing frequency and intensity over the years, directly and indirectly causing over 339,000 premature deaths worldwide. The result, they result in a, for, a forest degradation as they wipe out trees and vegetation, cause soil erosion, leading to secondary disasters like mudslides, and destroy the habitats of many species, thereby shrinking biodiversity. Reshma represents the best of youth entrepreneurship, brave, innovative, and solution-oriented, says the jury. Her model uses AI and technology in an innovative and savvy way in order to accurately predict the risk of forest fires while also accounting for the independent variables of climate, weather, and human behavior. And finally, Fernanda Barros, uh, who's 16, from Belém, Pará, Brazil. A megaphone for justice in the Amazonas. A co-founder of Fridays for Future Amazonia, Fernanda is fighting for climate and social justice in the face of a presidency actively thwarting her efforts. Undeterred by Bolsonaro and Brazil's powerful agriculture lobby, she is amplifying the voices of young Amazonians. It's not easy to work against a headwind, says the jury, who see a strong-willed individual who fights for fairness under difficult circumstances that the pandemic has made even more difficult. They added, they added, the states of the Amazonas, the rainforest in Brazil, are, tropical issue, are topical issues in the climate debate and affect all of us. Fernanda's work in this area, therefore, not only is important locally, but also globally. And there you go. That's the story of five young people who are making a difference in the world. Just remember that you can too. And that brings me around to closing out my podcast by reminding you, remember, if you can dream it, you can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, 
gather your personal belongings, and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. <laughs>